Well, good morning. It's always a pleasure to look up and to see familiar visitors and to see some new people. Let's see if my button works. There it is. So we are going to spend our third week on this Jerusalem Council. And I hope to kind of wrap things up and make a conclusion out of the things that happened. But before we do, I want to begin not with Acts 15, but I want to begin with Matthew chapter 9. The disciples of John, John the Baptist, that came to Jesus and they asked him the question. They said, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? They're looking around saying, you guys are, we're doing this thing and it's not easy. We're not eating. You guys are eating away and soon to be enjoying it, as it were. And they're asking why. And I do, I don't know if you guys appreciate as much as I do. If you read Jesus, you think, he always has the most clever answers, doesn't he? Like, you think, can't you just answer the question? But no, he does it so much better. He says, when asked about fasting, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. And they have to be thinking, what, wait, what are you talking about? Wedding guests? Are you getting married? Like, who's the groom? Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And then he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved." And don't you think they would just love a straight answer? Like, well, here's why we're not fasting and give an explanation. But he makes this comment and he talks about wineskins that are old being filled with something new. In garments that are old, you put a new patch on it and the patch will shrink and the cloth will tear. And they had to think like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And then here we come to the book of Acts and suddenly find something new. And we find people trying to force it into something old. And I wonder if in their mind they're thinking like, that's it. That is what he was talking about. We have this tendency, we don't like change. When we get something new, we want to stick it in the old thing, the thing we understand, the thing that makes us comfortable. And I don't know, do any of you resist change as well? We're thinking, nope, not doing something new. New ideas? Nope, not doing it. I'll admit, like, actually, I really like when things change. Every few years, I do a new job at work. I get a new grade level, a new batch of kids. I do like the change. Some people hate to move. I secretly, I love to move. I love going somewhere new. So in some ways, this really might resonate with some of you. But I like this idea, something new. And when the gospel goes out and it's something new, I just think, yes, like God is doing a work. And I think about this, um, in the beginning of the book of Acts, when they talk about the gospel going out, they kind of describe the geographic progression. They say, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses. And look at the geography here. Jerusalem, Judea, 
Samaria, the ends of the earth. And can you kind of see that in your mind? I thought I could put a map for you. Check it out. So here's how the circles go. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria is kind of up here. And then the ends of the earth, as far as the book of Acts is concerned. And does it even go beyond just the book of Acts? You know, eventually the gospel covers the whole world. And as we think about this, look at all these different people groups. You know, Jerusalem and Judea, I mean, Jewish people live there. They kind of understand each other. You know, Samaritans, they were a little bit different. That was kind of some intermingling of cultures in Samaria. But can you imagine in their world, when they went up here to Colossae, to Ephesus, to Corinth, can you imagine when Paul from Jerusalem found himself in Rome? I mean, it must have seemed like they were walking on the moon. I mean, these people are different, really different. And when some of the gospel comes out, the big question they're wrestling with in Jerusalem is, when you become a Christian, do you have to become a Jew to become a Christian? That was their big question. And so it's kind of this change in perspective from thinking about Judaism and Christianity and really the idea of the Christ. It's a very Jewish idea. You know, Christ was promised to the people of Israel and their scope was about this big. And when Christ comes, he's going to conquer the world and rule it with an iron fist. Like, mm, we like this idea. But the idea would encompass all these other people who'd be brought in. I think it had to be a little bit of a mind-bending concept. Like, wait a minute. God's going to bring in the other people and he's going to bring them into our kingdom? I'm not so sure how I feel about this. Because I'm not so sure how I feel about them. We spent a lot of time keeping them at arm's length. And now we're going to bring them in. So is it to become a Jew, to believe the gospel, is it to become a Jew? Or is it something different altogether? Is God doing a new work? Or is he just putting the new wine, as it were, into an old skin? And whether this is an individual thing or a national thing, I just put a question mark there. Oftentimes when you read about nations being brought in, I mean, that was the thought of like individuals. I think it would have been a very foreign thing to a Jew in the first century. You know, what are you talking about? Like, you're going to let just individual people come in and not become Jews? Like, who are they going to belong to? And it really kind of begs the question, when someone receives Christ, what are you? I mean, are you a Jew now? Are you like somehow like a Gentile nation? Like now Rome's a Christian nation now, or they're a Jewish nation now too? Or is it something different? And we're all being brought into something new. And we're going to look at that. So, the Jerusalem Council. This is kind of a story in and of itself. So if you can imagine geographically, Paul and Barnabas are up north in Antioch. And it says men came down from Judea. So interesting, this little geography for you. That you go north to go down to Antioch. Okay, so like geographically, Jerusalem is usually spoken of as being up. And so you come down from Jerusalem. But they come down from Judea. And they have this Judaizing doctrine. They're saying, okay, it's fine. If you want to become Christians, you can 
But you have to become a Jew first. This is a Judaizing doctrine. You've got to do something first. Become one of us, then you can come in. So this phrase, you must be circumcised first, it's not just circumcision, but that's the outward symbol of something you've done. You've become a Jew. That's like the covenant sign that you're one of us. So it's not just circumcision in itself. And oftentimes in the New Testament, in the letters, it talks about you know, what advantage for the circumcision. I mean the Jews. So it's a picture of becoming Jewish. I thought you guys would like the map here on my Google map. I thought, I wonder how far Antioch is. Like, is it still there? So check it out. Antioch is up here and Jerusalem is down here. So Paul and Barnabas are up here. The Judaizers are here. They make their way up teaching Judaizing doctrine along the way. You must become a Jew. And I thought, I wonder how long it would take. Do you guys ever check this before you go someplace? Well, you can see how long it takes to drive, almost 10 hours, but to walk, six days, about 152 hours now, if you were to walk that distance. So this is not a casual afternoon trip. So the people are coming up this way. They find themselves in Antioch. Paul refutes them. They discuss it. So Paul and Barnabas make a decision. They're going to go down to Jerusalem. We're going to straighten these things out. We're going to have a conference. And so last week he found Peter. He explained how the Gentiles were brought in. The story with uh, Cornelius. And so that leaves us where we're at today here. So they're at the conference. They got to figure out what do we say? What do we say to this controversy? So I'm going to begin actually in... um, I'm reading from the ESV, and they put a paragraph at uh, verse 12. So I'm going to take some liberty and back up one verse. It said, And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Paul, Barnabas and Paul as they related to what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And I'm sure the Jewish believers are thinking, Seriously? Among the Gentiles? And after they finished speaking, so Paul and Barnabas, they finished telling their story. James, this is the same James as the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus James. So he seems to have a very prominent place in the early church. He replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. So we learned last week to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. So interesting what we have here. James seems to be, as it were, the lead elder, if you could say it that way. Maybe the guy when the buck stops. James says, it's time. As it were, we've heard the evidence. And a couple things to note here. Um, He mentions the Gentiles. That God has a heart, a desire to take a people from among the Gentiles for his name. And so often in the Old Testament when you read about the nation of Israel, they are a people 
who are God's people for his name's sake. That God has set aside a people to be his people. And he says, look, now the gospel is going out and Gentiles are receiving it. And God is gathering in a people from all nations for himself. To give, put, get, to give them, as it were, his name, to make them a part of his family, as it were. And there was a lot of discussion about this. They had discussion. They looked at the evidence of the miraculous things that were being done. That, in a sense, it kind of um, validated what they were saying. It was being validated by miracles, by signs. And then they go back and they look, what do the scriptures say? What has been written? You know, when something new comes along, I'm not saying I think this is happening in our modern day, but in the book of Acts, it really is a transitioning time. A door has opened to the rest of the world. And the question is, like, is this of God? Or is this just people pushing an agenda because they want something new? And I think signs is a validation from God, these miraculous things. But also, it's in accordance with God's word, what's already been revealed. So it's not like they invented something new that contradicts what's already gone before. But it's in alignment. It's just the next step of what they should expect to see. And so, quoting from Amos, James says, let's take a look and see. What does Amos say about this? And after this, he says, I will return. And I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. This is God saying, after Israel's been dispersed, they've been disciplined of God for a season, he says, I'll bring them back. And we see this like in Ezra and Nehemiah. God brings the people back into the land, rebuilds the city of Jerusalem, rebuilds the wall. And I can imagine the Jews saying, well, right on, we're back. But then what he says next, he says that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. Isn't that something? Like he does it for a purpose. He rebuilds the city because he wants the rest of the people to see this is who my God, who their God is. That mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. There's that phrase again. Gentiles, not the people of Israel, being called into God's kingdom. Says the Lord who makes these things known from old. So he goes back to the scripture. And it might seem like this is kind of a brand new thing, but I just want to make a point. This really is God's original purpose. It's not plan B. It's not, oops, I guess those people are lousy people after all. But God has a purpose to bring the whole world, the Gentile nations. And I just threw up three references here. Um, the first one, Genesis, that's Abraham being called for the purpose that all nations would be blessed. You know, Daniel is a son of man vision. So it said all the nations would fall under the authority of the son of man. And in Isaiah, he says that Israel will become a light to the nations. So this idea of the nations, the Gentiles, it's not foreign. In the, it doesn't like we just pull us up out of the book of Acts and now all of a sudden Gentiles are in. But God's had this purpose from a long time past. You know, God has a sovereign plan that he's working out. 
And this is where it begins to take place. And people are a little bit upset with it. Like, what do we do with this? And James said, no, no, like this has been God's design. Look back. And they would have known this. It's not like they were people who were unfamiliar with the Old Testament. And maybe to our shame in our modern culture, I think we have a very um, thin understanding of the scripture. You know, we got a verse here, a verse there. But I think in a culture that was steeped in their theology, like they would have known these things. It's not like we have to ask, like, is that really a verse? Maybe I quote something like, is that really in the Bible? Well, sometimes you know, sometimes you don't know. They would have known. And we should be people who know, know the word. It takes time. It takes effort. So, here's the plan. He says, therefore, my judgment. So James, James of all people, he's making the decision here on behalf of those who are present. He says, therefore, my judgment is we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Don't trouble them. You know, when Peter was talking, he said, don't give them a burden that we could not bear. Don't give them any heavier burden. We couldn't carry it. Why would you put that burden of the law that we couldn't carry and say, here, you take it now because I know we can't carry it. You can't either. So do this before you follow Jesus. I mean, it's not rational. It's not reasonable. He says, no, don't trouble them. But he says, we should write to them. And he gives them four things that they should do. And here they are. Write to them to abstain from the things that are polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So interesting. James says, no, you don't need to be circumcised. No, Gentiles, you don't need to become Jews. But we're going to ask you to do these four things. And there's a little bit of a, a controversy, some question about, like, are these things still binding on us currently? I'm, I've got a thought for you I'll share. I'm not sure it's like of prime first-tier importance. These aren't questions that I would uh, part fellowship with you. So if we can uh, agree to disagree, maybe. But it does seem like these are an unusual, like why would you pull these four things to say, well, okay, you don't have the burden of the law, but do these four. Why, why these four? And it seems that these are issues of fellowship. Like things can we get along in a mixed company of Jews and Gentiles? Can we have fellowship one with another? And so the things he mentions are food that's been polluted from idols. So in the ancient world, um, sacrifices would have been taken to the pagan temples. They would have killed the animal. And then the meat would often be taken to the, uh, like the meat market down to Safeway at the butcher aisle. And the Gentiles were like, oh, let's go enjoy a steak. And Jews would be like, no, 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 we are not touching I would not touch food offered to an idol. You know, Paul addresses this in um, in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know, food offered to an idol. The, the idol is nothing. But he says, you know, for the sake of the weaker brother, you know, you can abstain. He talks about um, sexual immorality. And of course, we say yes to this. 
sexual immorality. Immorality of any sort is not something you should engage in. But in particular, in the ancient world, it seemed a lot of the religious practices, especially the temples revolved around like prostitution, other nonsense that people would do that, um, you'd be like, ooh, don't, like, don't do that. Or like Levitical laws about marrying close relatives. Like, no, don't do that. So they said, don't, don't do those things. Things that would qualify, that would be especially repulsive to a Jewish audience. Like, don't do them, but especially things revolving around religious sexual practices, which almost sounds like a strange sentence, doesn't it? To have a religious and yes, sexual practice. It says, no, don't do those. And the foods, the kosher laws, if it's been strangled, if it's the blood is still in the animal or the blood has been drained, like, no, don't eat those things. You shouldn't do that. That would be a hindrance toward fellowship. And so it says, no, don't do these. Um, so it reminded me of the issue of strangling and of blood. You know, we spent some time in China and you can go to the restaurants and there's actually a dish of coagulated pig blood. And so I thought to myself, like, is that the most un-Jewish thing you could think of to serve somebody? It's, and it looks kind of like red tofu. So those who are have a disdain for tofu as it is, imagine pig blood flavored tofu. And no, I didn't take it. And it was not necessarily um, on account of Acts 15. I thought, no, I'm just not eating that. But James has these four things. Now, I'm inclined to think it was especially geared toward the issue of fellowship in that time. They're not things that I'm especially, um, like the things I want to do anyway. There's, so I'm, I'm, inclined, I'm inclined to say, I think it was for this audience, for this time. That's my, my conclusion. If you find this still incumbent on you and you wish not to eat strangled things or drink blood, which... I don't anyway, but feel free and con- follow your conscience in that matter. So, but it really brings us to like, you know, what is, like, what is the purpose of the Mosaic system? It seems that James is saying that, no, you don't have to follow the Mosaic system any longer. You don't need to be circumcised. We just ask these four things. But what was the purpose of it? And I want to bring out just a few things. Why the Mosaic system was in place? What was its intended purpose? I've got six things here. There probably is a lot more. But this, I think, is a good starting spot. So just to begin with, the Mosaic system, it really did reveal God's holy character and our inability to live up to God's nature. All those things that God commanded revealed something about himself. Also, they set them apart, set apart the nation of Israel from all their neighbors. Many things about the law were meant to differentiate, so you are not like the nations around you. God wanted them to be a distinct people, to be a holy people, a people set apart from people around them. And many parts of the law did just that. It created a separation in custom and culture, in habit. And in many ways, the nations around them did horrible things. And oftentimes, when people intermarried or mingled, as you read the Old Testament, disaster resulted when people mingled with the nations around them. So God wanted to separate his people from the people around. 
It reveals our sinfulness. If you try and keep the law, you can't. And the harder you try, the more depressing it gets. Um, I recently heard someone say they didn't really deal with temptation until they became a Christian. I just did what I wanted. It wasn't a problem. When you tell yourself no, you realize, oh, this is hard. The law, so many elements of the law point to Christ. It's a picture. It's a shadow. The things we see in the law, the sacrificial systems, it points us to the perfect sacrifice, who is Christ. In the same note, it provides a system for sacrifices. How do sinful people get made right with God? Well, there's a whole system in place. How to offer sacrifices. And finally, um, many of the things in the law, as you look back, um, were just a matter of just physical health. They were good for the people. I was amazed when we had a Jay Seeger here with us talking about just um, the knowledge that was in the law about ancient health cult, ancient health customs. I thought, wow. Like, I kind of heard that, but to hear someone from a scientific perspective say, the things we find in the Old Testament actually had legitimate health issues, health concerns. And the whole one, like the eighth day and circumcision and the blood clotting, I think it's online if you want to go back and see it. It was amazing, like, God, wait, God knows our physical bodies? Like, is that amazing? And we see it in the law that's what, 3,000 years old, 3,500? Like, that's amazing. And God knows best. He knows us. So there is a law. But I was reading um, in Corinthians, and it talks about, or sorry, Romans, Romans chapter 10, how though Christ... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for those who are in the Lord. So, yeah, these things, they serve a purpose, but they don't make you right with God. Next, the letter. So, we have a record of what the letter was sent. So, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles, to the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they've got their male people, Paul, Barnabas, and they sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. All right, verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Find it interesting in the ancient world, you put your name at the front instead of signing at the end. Here's who it's to and who it's from. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and they troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, 
from blood, from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from these, you will do well. Farewell. And there's the letter. A few things to note. The letter went out from the leaders in the church. And I like this thought, it's from us and it seemed good also to the Holy Spirit. So there's an element of, it doesn't mention it specifically, but I can't imagine they didn't pray over things. It made me think a little bit, I'm, I'm an elder here at this church, so we had to work some things out. And it made me think about just that process that we go through as elders. And it's not always easy. Um, some things are difficult, decisions to come to. And sometimes you have to make a decision. And you'd be surprised when things, decisions do get made. And I'm thankful I was not in that group when it was uh, COVID times. I missed out on those. But the idea that as we send things out, we don't send them out with a broken message. Well, three of us thought this, two of us thought this, we voted and guess who won. But no, there's a consensus. And sometimes it means like rubbing shoulders, expressing a difference of opinion. Coming to a point where we can all say, it seemed good to us. And the Holy Spirit. And I say this with humility. Because some things you kind of wish you could just turn to page 20 and find the answer. You know, like, Lord, what do we do? Like, when it's COVID, do we close the doors? Do we go online? It's not easy. But we pray. And pray the Holy Spirit is moving in our minds moving in our hearts, having a desire what is best for the body. I pray we don't have an agenda, but we can honestly say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us and that we can speak with a unified mind. And you know, we're not all the same people. We don't have the same ideas about things. And if you knew us, like we're all really different people from different walks of lives, different interests, hobbies, points of view. We're in different places in our lives. And yet for us to come to a place and say, this is from the leaders of the church, the elders, the eldership, and the Holy Spirit. I pray we can say with the Holy Spirit. And pray for us. Pray for us the Holy Spirit is at work with those of us who have to make decisions. But sometimes you just got to make a decision. There's something in front of you. You got to say something. And when the elders were there, I almost would have expected a kind of a divine revelation. Like, what do you say to the Gentiles? Well, I mean, they talked about it. The Holy Spirit guided it through prayer, I imagine. doesn't say it, but I can't, I can't imagine where it wouldn't. And then you apply wisdom. And you just make a decision sometimes. I'm... Again, the idea of the burden. Let's don't lay a burden on the shoulder of people that's not there. And so finally, the application. So what do we do with all of this? This council at Jerusalem. And it seemed like this really was a pivot point in the history of the church. I mean, are they going to open up the doors to the Gentiles? Or are they going to narrow things and say, no, you have to be like us? So, my application points, I'm going to start with number two, purposefully, because I want to save number one for last. 
But number two, point number two is this, that sometimes you have to make a decision. And you just take godly counsel, you take prayer, you take in what is in line with the word of God as you understand. And especially when things aren't like necessarily spelled out clearly, you make a decision. Like, where do you want to live? Where do you want to go to school? Who do you want to get married to? Sometimes you've got to make a decision. As church leaders, sometimes who's going to preach? What time? There are things that are not biblically prescribed that we have to decide. You know, are we going to have a Christmas hymn sing this year? I'm not going to find it here, but what do we do? What? You got to decide. That was an easy one. We're having it. But other things are not that easy. Point three, be willing to make some God-honoring compromises for the sake of unity. There are some things that are not necessarily biblical and you can compromise. Are you willing to set aside what makes you comfortable for the sake of unity in the body? And especially when, if we have an, this is a tremendously, for them, a tremendously tumultuous time, but if our church changes, and let's say our demographic changes, and culturally we change, in a biblical God-honoring way, are we willing to change? I don't know. I mean, how many of you are sitting in the same pew you've been in for the last 10 years? <laughs> we always sit over here. You know where to find us. When someone comes and sits in your pew, and this is something small, what if someone comes in and says something big? I was trying to think of something big. I couldn't think of it. Should we have a drum set? I don't know. But there are cultural things that maybe are just cultural. Are we willing to let go of those things for unity? to set aside my comforts for the sake of my brother to win Christ? Like, I hope we are. And that must have been a tough thing for people who were steeped in their culture. Their religion was their identity. And to say, I'm going to let that go for the sake of the Gentiles? That's a lot to ask. That's a big ask. And the apostles, the elders, they say, we're going to ask you to do that, except for these things. Okay. And I put quotes here. You don't need to be a Christian, in quotes, in a cultural sense, before you turn to God. And I've spent, really been thinking about this last few weeks. If someone comes to a point where they see their need for Christ, do we say you have to be, in quotes, us first? You have to be Christian culturally before you can repent and turn to God? And sometimes I fear we do. People might come into our front door of this church and say, woohoo, not for me. These aren't my people. Are we willing to say, like, well, you have to be like us before you can be part of the body of Christ, the church? Like, I think in a kind of a somewhat unified culture, it's easy to say that. But if someone isn't dressed like us, doesn't eat our food, doesn't sing our songs, do we say, if you want to become part of the Christian community, you have to do these things. You have to become, as it were, in quotes, Christian before you come to God. And I think the more that we mingle with other cultures, and if you have a chance, by all means, you should mingle with other cultures. But you don't have to become like us 
before you become one of us. You don't have to become American before you become a Christian. You don't have to like do the, as it were, cultural things before you turn to Christ. And having been around the world just a little bit, and if you've been around the world, I think you can, people have said they resonate with this. God's kingdom is bigger than the United States, isn't it? If you've been somewhere else, and sometimes other cultures, they don't look like us. They don't sing the songs we sing. They don't eat our foods. And yet they are every bit as part of God's kingdom. And that's a wonderful thing. So don't make other cultures become us to become Christian. So I put that in quotes purposefully. Not Christian in the sense of following Christ. Indeed, they should. And finally this. As I look out, I can't see your hearts. I don't know what's keeping someone from coming to Christ. If there's something you feel like, you know, I got to fix the thing before I can really become a Christian. I don't know what it is for you. If you're hanging on to something, like I got to fix it first. As it were saying, I've got to be circumcised metaphorically, not literally. But if I have to do this thing before I can become a Christian, no, no, you don't. You just need to come to Christ now, today, Kind of the formula, and I think it's been said the last two weeks, and I'll say it again because it's worthwhile. You need to come to Christ. You need to come to God by grace alone. You access that grace through faith alone. And the object of your faith is simply Christ alone. So I'm going to pray. So Father, we do want to thank you just for your, your goodness to us. We don't have to fix things, Lord, before we come to you. Indeed, we can just come to you by faith. Um, and indeed, you, you work in our lives, and you move us toward holy living. But just give us eyes to see you afresh, Lord. And just pray we just simply come, come to you. And so we just pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.